Shalom, this is Reverend John Ferret, and we are in the continuing series on the book of Genesis, the series that is called The Gospel According to Moses. We're in Lesson 70, and we're still at Beit El. We're still at the place where God has shown up to Jacob in his dream. Jacob almost says, Beit El, this is the place where God is, this is the place where God dwells. It can be translated as the house of God, but that doesn't make any sense because the house of God is Jerusalem. This is Bethel, which is north of Jerusalem, but Beit El does not always mean a temple or a house. It can mean the place where somebody exists, and God did show up. He existed at that location, as far as Jacob's concerned in his dream. Now, Jacob is told by the Lord, Yahweh, the same promises that he told his grandfather, Abraham. Now, you can check this out. This is in Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3. That's the promises made to Abraham. And then the promises made to Jacob are in the chapter we're studying, Genesis 28, Verses 13 through 14. It'd be worthwhile for you to check those verses. Genesis 12, verses 1, 2, and 3, and Genesis 28, 13 through 14. What you'll notice if you compare them, they're the same. But Jacob's name will not be honored like Abraham's. Jacob is a descendant of Abraham, and indeed he's part of this continuing plan that God has initiated with the covenant with Abraham. Now, what's amazing is what did God mean that all the families of the earth, all the families of all the nations will be blessed? Once again, we're going to look at this in Hebrew. And again, Hebrew words have a conceptual meaning. And this means it connects ideas and notions and thoughts related to a theme, you might say Hebrew words are thematic. So, for instance, shalom is not peace, but peace is a part of the overall theme of shalom. Shalom has a conceptual meaning. We won't go into it right now, but for instance, part of the application and the use of the word shalom is prosperity. The prosperity of the sons. This is in Isaiah, and, and the word shalom is used as well. So a Hebrew word can't necessarily pin, be pinned down like an English word to an exact, precise definition. But the Hebrew word is a concept. So you have to understand the overall theme and concept, and then its meaning is seen as you put that word in textual context. And sometimes the context means there can be an alternative, valid meaning. So this happens in these verses. Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, and 28, 13 through 14. But especially in Genesis 12, verse 3. Now in this lesson, we're going to study that idea. We're going to study how the Gentiles are being blessed. The concept, the theme is totally explosive. It seems as if Paul, a brilliant student of Gamaliel, 
a Hebrew scholar, a Greek scholar, that Paul writes about this blessing in Genesis 12, verse 3. You'll see what I mean. So Jacob is being told by Yahweh, Adonai, the Lord, that he's going to receive three of the four promises made to the grand, to this grand over grand plan that God has initiated with his covenant with Abraham. And all of a sudden, this is going to take us to Paul. It takes us to an amazing picture of who we are as Gentiles as we become disciples of Adonai Yeshua. And once we understand the Hebrew, once we understand what Paul understood, it helps us understand that there is something missing. Something is missing in the Torah. Something is missing in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Even the great rabbis saw this. Akiva in the early 2nd century and Maimonides in the early 12th century. And the writer of the book of Hebrews. And this missing piece in Torah, we're going to see it's intimately related to Jacob's dream. It seems clearly related to the cross of Yeshua, the final sacrifice of the Lamb of God. And then, in this lesson, we'll finally leave Beit El and the Torah. The Lord will take us to Haran, to Jacob's mother's brother's house. Her brother was Laban. That's Jacob's uncle. And there, God does something to Jacob to make him want to stay at his uncle's house. It wasn't spiritual. It wasn't mental. God used the natural tendencies of men to give Jacob an overwhelming desire to stay at his uncle Laban's house. It is fascinating to see how God does things to the various characters in the Torah, Jacob being one of them, which means how do, how does what does he do in our lives? to help us and steer us in the proper way. So the English of these verses is too sanitized and too watered down. You'll see what I mean. We need to take a look at the Hebrew because the Hebrew gives us that background that we need to understand what God did to Jacob to make him want him to stay. And again, like I said, it's an amazing idea of how God uses all aspects of us to teach us, to guide us, to instruct us, to discipline us and lead us. God comes to us spiritually, yep. Mentally, yep. And even physically. So come on. Let's go and study all of this. Here we go. Verses 1 through 3. 
Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. And in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, I'm going to work, concentrate on verse 3. I will bless those who bless you. He's talking to Abraham. And he who curses you, I will damn. All the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. Listen to this phrase. All of the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. I'm going to repeat it again. All of the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. Now Jacob has a dream, yes? And in the dream, what does God say? All of the clans of the soil will find blessing through you. The exact phrase he spoke to Abraham is now repeated only to Jacob. Exact. Through Abraham, all Jew and Gentile are going to be blessed. Hebrew is the same for both verses. And then... I want to introduce you to Rabbi Joseph Shulam. Let me tell you who he is. Yosef Baruch Shulam, born in Bulgaria, 1946, immigrated to Israel in 48, became a Christian. He's a Messianic Jewish scholar in 1962. Educated at Hebrew University, he's got a BA in Bible and Bible Archaeology later. At Hebrew University, he got a Master's of Arts in the History of Jewish Thought in the Second Temple Period. And from 1972 to 75, he studied with Orthodox Jewish rabbis and Jewish thought and diaspora yeshiva in Jerusalem. He is an expert in biblical studies. He lectures worldwide on such topics as the first century church in Jerusalem, the Jewish roots of the New Testament, and contemporary Middle East politics. Okay? This guy is amazing. Here are some of the recognized Christian scholars who talk about him. Um, numerous references to the Hebrew Bible, Qumran, and rabbinic literature make this book a must. A must. A must. For all who wish to inquire into the meaning of the most important document in Paul's writings. Shulam has done a masterful job. George Howard, author of the Hebrew Gospel of Matthew, professor of religion, University of Georgia. Then, Dr. Craig Keener, one of my favorites, author of the IVP Bible Background Commentary, the New Testament, and professor of biblical studies at Eastern Seminary. This work will prove an indispensable resource for all scholars interested in the early Jew Jewish context of Romans and the Jewishness of the faith of the first century believers in Jesus. Then, uh, Richard Nickel, Messianic Rabbi, Congregation of Ruach Israel. Joe Shulam's commentary in the Book of Romans comes as a refreshing addition to the growing body of Pauline scholarship. First, the rabbinic and other Jewish materials cited add genuine insight as we seek to understand what the epistle does and does not teach. I love what this says that. What the epistle teaches and what does not teach. Second, the myriad of quotes from these sources help the Westerner, the Western-orientated student of Scripture, that's us, enter into the feeling and thought world of our ancient Jewish people. This, this, is, this is the commentary, Jewish commentary in the book of Romans. This is not something you pick up and have a cup of coffee and try to read on a Saturday afternoon for an hour. You can't do that. This is serious commentary. This guy is a Hebrew expert. He's talking about Paul, and he says, Paul interprets the verse in Genesis 12, 3, and I just read it to you, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
The Hebrew is Venevrechu Becha. And that's one way of reading it. He's playing on the meaning, and this is interesting, of the root of Barak. Barak is blessing. I didn't know this until about two weeks ago. Every verb in Hebrew has a stem, has a root. And there's a whole concept, because if you get to that root, that stem, okay, it's the foundation for the action in the verb. And this was, I got all the Hebrew, I'm not going to give you the Hebrew because I'm just playing with this for the first time. So I, my writing here, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've got to study stems, okay? But he said this, the verb root for that phrase, ve nevrechu, is the same, okay, for another verb. So you can read this in two ways. The other way of reading it, which is legitimate, is, and in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be grafted in. Boom. And in the late first century A.D. and into the second century A.D., almost at the same time that Paul would have been teaching, though slightly after, there was a rabbi called Rabbi Eliezer Hakanis, also known as Rabbi Eliezer the Great, he is just one of the most fantastic rabbis of that period. Shortly after Paul's day uh, and into the days of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Eliezer said, What is meant by the text? And in thee shall the families of the earth be blessed in Genesis 12.3. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to Abraham, I have two goodly shoots, or actually in literal uh, shoots is blessings. I have two goodly shoots, blessings, to engraft. He didn't use the word to bless. I have two godly shoots or goodly shoots to engraft. On you, root the Moabitess and Naamah the the Ammonitess. All the families of the earth, even the other families who live on the earth, are blessed only for Israel's sake. All the nations of the earth, even the ships that go from Gaul to Spain, are blessed only for Israel's sake. And they're grafted in. I have never heard this before. Until Shulam. And I want to let you guys know, Joseph Shulam at Netevia Ministry in Israel, is he's phenomenal. And he is so gentle. I've had talks with him on the phone in Israel. He's just an amazing, amazing guy. This is amazing. And more than that, we're dealing with two amazing Hebrew scholars, Eleazar ben Hyrcanus, Eleazar the Great, and Paul, a student of Gamliel, both Hebrew experts, and both living at about the same time. So Eleazar, he's looking at Genesis 12.3 and seeing that the Hebrew can mean grafted in, and it's as if Paul, he's talking about being grafted in and could it very well be that Paul is talking about Genesis 12.3? Because in another section of scripture, Paul talks about the fact 
that indeed God gave the gospel to Abraham when God told Abraham through him all the families of the earth would be blessed and then Paul in another section of his own letters writes that we would be grafted in. We become part of the promises of Israel. So, in Judaism, there really seems to be a question. Perhaps in Jesus' day, and all the way through the times of Akiva and Maimonides, how are we saved? How are our sins cleansed? Maimonides, sacrifices don't work, but his opinion, repent. Akiva, sacrifices don't work, but repent. And this is, the Bible doesn't say that. Now, don't get me wrong, repentance is strong. It's in there, but God never said, if you repent, your sins will be forgiven. It does not say that. The writer of Hebrews, okay, there is not going to be any sacrifice except for the blood of Jesus, and now you're in. Now everything changed. So Torah and its rituals and sacrifices does and cleanse us from our sins. In other words, you guys, Torah doesn't work. Now careful, it's God's instruction. It's daddy sitting down with you and saying, son, daughter, let me tell you about life. Let me give you an instruction. Don't steal. Okay, meet me seven times a year at least, please. Okay, don't commit adultery. All this instruction that he gives us. And then Paul teaches this. Acts 13.39. To me, Acts 13.39 and John 5.39, to me are two of the most important verses in the entire Bible. John 5.39, Jesus says, all scripture testifies of me. And then you really got to answer the question, what did he mean? Acts 13.39, Paul is on his first, what they call, missionary journey. Paul never went on missionary journeys. Okay, there's no such thing as missionary journeys. He's not going out to make converts. Jesus said, go and make disciples. He's going out to make disciples. He's not there to plant churches. It's not about churches. It's about making disciples. Who said he's going to build a church? Jesus, not Paul. So, Paul is in a place called Antioch of Pisidia. It's in southern central Turkey. It's his first synagogue that he's teaching in. And basically he says this to a bunch of deeply religious Jews. What the Torah could not do, Jesus did. Now the interesting thing is, now that we understand Maimonides, now that we understand the Kiva, now that we understand the writer of Hebrews, what, is the, what can't the Torah do? There's 36 transgressions of which the Torah cannot give you any forgiveness. They're called karat. And the Jews are teaching us that. And these Jews are excited. They don't get mad. They're not mad at Paul. They said, can you come back next week and teach us more? You read it, Acts 13, 39. They're not mad at him. He comes back next week and word spread throughout the entire city of Antioch, big place, huge place. It was called the Rome of the East, built on seven hills. Amazing place. And who shows up at the synagogue? Who's crowding into the synagogue? Those filthy, dirty Gentiles. And all of a sudden, these religious Jews see all these filthy, dirty Gentiles that are into the synagogue who are going to contaminate Judaism and hurt their temple and hurt their religion. Those filthy, dirty Gentiles. And now they're mad at Paul. 
They're not mad at Paul because of Jesus. They're mad at Paul because of you. You're not Jewish. And they don't want anything to do with you, which is part of the culture. But all of a sudden, Paul is saying, I've got an answer. We have an answer. He goes to Berea. These are, again, deeply Orthodox Jews. They never heard about Jesus. Comes walking into the town, more than likely teaching the same thing. I, that's my guess. That's a guess. And what did the Berean Jews do? They said, hey, Paul, this is really good. Uh, w- listen, could you leave for a week? We're going to study the scripture. It's exactly what it says. What scripture? The Torah and the prophets. Come back next week and we'll talk. Come back next week and say, wow, everything you said is true. Ladies and gentlemen, we have the gospel according to Moses. It's right here. We all have an evil inclination. Either kill us in the flood, or I like to say this. This is my own statement. The creature comes to cure the crisis in the creature through the cross. A lot of C's. The creator had to come to fix us. The solution is there. The antidote's there. All you got to go is to the drugstore and say, I accept Jesus as Lord and Savior. I accept him as God. I understand exactly what he do for me. And so therefore, can I be cleansed? Yep. It's like going to the, but you got to go get it. It's done. It's like a Walgreens drugstore down here. You got to go get it. So the creator is going to cure the creature. But when did this happen? When did, did we know for sure, okay, that the creator would come to cure what's wrong with the creature? Genesis 15. Okay, I'm not going to repeat that. That's semester, what semester would that be? Two, I think. Yeah, it would be semester two. Semester two last spring. Remember when Abraham... God told him, okay, you want a covenant? Get me a three-year-old calf. Get me a three-year-old she-goat. Get me a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a pigeon. Cut the calf and the she-goat and the ram in half, and they're going to walk through the blood. Remember I talked about the blood covenant? And remember God said, okay, no, Abraham, I'll go through for you. So for Abraham and his seed, for Abraham and his descendants, God was our substitute because he knew Abraham and his descendants and us who are grafted into the family, okay, we're going to break the covenant because we all have a problem. And the problem is Genesis 6-5 and Genesis 8-21, which the flood never took care of. When was Jesus sent to the cross? Genesis 15. And so we can say, by grace we've been saved and not by works. Why? Because there's a ladder. The ladder is set up, and we have nothing to do with it. It's already there. He's the way. And so when we read about Jacob's ladder, and then Jesus, and all these connections, where is the gospel? According to Moses. Right there. Let's see how we're doing on time. Very good. Now, we get to Genesis. So I'm done with my four concepts. And we move on, and we come to a very interesting part of the uh, Torah. And we get to Genesis 29, verses 1 through 30. And now Jacob is coming to Haran. 
And the first thing he does, he comes to a well. And all these guys, this is, I like the way Dennis Prager put it. This is water, Bible water cooler talk, okay? Every, all the guys are meeting their gals at the, at the well. So he's at the well, and he meets and sees ravishing Rachel. Okay, I wanted to give you that ravishing Rachel. The reason being is when you go to Genesis 29:17, we're not going to read it. It says she's fair of form. Really? When you look at the <laughs> Bruce is laughing. When you actually look at the Hebrew, the Hebrew there her form is tohar. And the uh, Strong's numbers H8389. In other words, it's shape or form. So, in Genesis 29:17, it says Rachel was fair of form. How would we say it in the 21st century? Whoa, she got a body. That's exactly what it is. She's ravishing, okay? And Leah, oh, she's got weak eyes. Doesn't even say that. I don't know how the translators get away when translating that word as weak. Her eyes are soft. I tell you, when I look at my wife's eyes, she has got soft eyes. Sometimes when she's not mad at me. <laughs> soft eyes. By the way, she's ravishing as well. <laughs> now, Leah doesn't seem like she's shapely, doesn't like she's got like a body like Rachel, but she's soft and beautiful. Now, it's very interesting to me in this. We talk about being blinded. I, I'm really seeing there's a theme here. Abraham couldn't see what God was doing when God told Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Remember that? He didn't see it. Isaac didn't see it. Isaac and Abraham didn't see the sacrifice. They didn't know what was going on. Isaac had eyes only for Esau. He was blinded by his son, right? Because he was a hunter and gave him good food. Rebekah was blinded by Jacob because he was man of the tents. What does that mean? He was taking care of family business. He was acting like the firstborn. That's what you do. You stay home and you are a shepherd and a herder. Isaac, was, he was blind, really physically blind, and he's tricked by Jacob. And now Jacob, he's blinded by the ravishing Rachel. I love those two words, ravishing Rachel. Put that in your Bible from now on, okay, and start teaching that. I don't know if you teach that to junior high or not, you know. Rachel was ravishing. <laughs> so... I think the kids would get a kick out of it. But Abraham, now Abraham called God, and remember uh, Abraham called God, Yahweh, Yira, you say Jehovah, Jireh. And everybody says, oh yeah, the Lord God provides. I, and again, I don't get it. I don't get how this is so misinterpreted when you, it's so easy to look up. Jehovah, Jireh, which is Yahweh, Yira, means God sees doesn't say anything about provides. The Lord sees. It's amazing. God works through everyday men and women. They're weak. They're sinful. They're limited. They're blinded. It is He who sees. It is He who works in us, through us. You remember Paul when he says, everything works together for the good? Why? Because God sees it. So Jacob is blinded by Rachel's beauty. Is there anything wrong with that? No. Don't commit adultery. 
don't get into sexual sin. But the thing is, is that women are made in a certain way, and they're made in a certain way that men aren't. Okay, and gentlemen, you know what I mean, that we are attracted with our eyes at looking at the females. Okay, so that's just nature. God did that. So there's nothing wrong that all of a sudden he is, whoa, really overwhelmed with her. Later, we're going to see, as we go through the story, and this is very important. Matter of fact, I've got to put a star here. When I go back, I've got to put a major star here. He sees that God uses Rachel to bring about his will. Remember, Jacob, what did he say? We're still at the dream. God, if that was you in a dream, you, and if that's you, if you really said that, if you really said all that stuff, you, you got to show me. Because if this is the case, I'm going to call this stone the house of God. And I'm going to tithe to you. This is amazing. But that was a dream. And that's all he's got. Later on, we're going to find he meets God. And he declares it in his own word. I have met God. And God did exactly what he said in the dream. The dream was true. Because right now, he's probably still doubting the dream. But later on. So God used Rachel's beauty. This ravishing girl from Haran. Lord Jacob. Jacob is blinded by physical love. Physical desire. Nothing wrong with that. But what's the result? Twelve sons. Twelve tribes. The nation of Israel. Through whom the Messiah comes. And you're saved. All because one girl in Haran was really built. God had to get Jacob's attention somehow. I don't think God could have come to Jacob and said, Jacob, yes, here's what I'd like you to do. Um, there's two girls I want you to marry. Okay, because really what I'm after is I have a redemption plan. And my redemption plan is so that all people, you know, both Jew and Gentile, will be saved and their sins will be forgiven. That sounds really boring. It's not boring. It's great. But the thing is, is that we see how God uses everyday things to accomplish his purposes all the way through. Now in Genesis 29, verse 21 through 27, we find that Jacob wants to get married. He wants Rachel. He worked for his seven years. Laban says, fine tricks him and gives her Leah. We know the story. You've read it before. Jacob gets up in verse 25. This is 29:25, And he says to Laban, Laban, what is this you've done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why have you deceived me? So I want to end off this evening with... The deceiver is deceived. What goes around comes around. In the Bible, it's called measure for measure. In Hebrew, midah, kaneged, midah. Something for, something for something. This is a common concept in the Hebrew scriptures. So, 
Briefly, in Exodus chapter 4, verses 22 to 23, we don't have to read it. God says this, Israel is my firstborn son. He doesn't say Israel is my firstborn sons. He said Israel is my firstborn son. Let my firstborn son go or I will kill yours. Moses, tell Pharaoh that. <laughs> okay. Nice thing to tell the king of Egypt. Another one. Here's Midah, Kaneged Midah. Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, and then Exodus 14 through 28. When you take a look at these verses, what happens is Pharaoh declares a law that all the Hebrew boys need to be drowned in the, in, in, in the Nile. What happens to his army later on in Exodus 14, 28? They're completely drowned in the sea. Measure for measure. Remember the brothers? They tried, well, they got rid of Joseph. And Joseph is in Egypt. And remember, he's second in command now, and it's the famine. And the brothers come down there, and Joseph's really giving them a bad time. Like they didn't know what's going on, because they didn't know what's Joseph. So in Genesis 42, 21, the brothers are talking to each other and said, oh man, remember all the distress we gave Joseph? Now look at all the distress we've got. We're getting paid for our, what we did to him. Measure for measure. They understood this concept. Remember Haman in the book of Esther? What did he try to do? He tried to hang Mordecai. By the way, Persians don't hang. They impale. They stick a guy in a stick like a meatball, okay? So that's impaling, they don't hang. And so the thing is, is that what happens to Haman? He's impaled, measure for measure. So the last thing to bring up is this. Measure for measure is something we should be aware of. However, it is something for us personally to be aware of in terms of our relationship to ourselves, to the world. But never, never, never should you do measure for measure towards another person. What I mean by that is this. Here's a rabbinic lesson. I love this. When someone cries out for help, or someone comes to you for help and they're in need, do not refuse them because you say, oh, their trouble is measure for measure. They must have sinned because that's why their problem is. I'm not helping that sinner. That's measure for measure. You are looking at another individual and said, see, they must have sinned. Don't do it, the rabbi says. Help them with no qualification. Otherwise, God will look at your sin, he will look at your faults, and he will never help you. Now, that's rabbinical teaching. Proverbs 21, verse 13. He who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry and not be answered. When the poor are crying, you don't judge them. You don't say, oh, they're poor. So therefore, they might have done something to deserve this. You're judging. Do you see what you're doing? You're using measure or measure on them. You have no business to do that. If you sin before God, and what goes around comes around, who's going to take care of the consequences? God. God is trying to put fear into you. You cheat, you will be cheated. That's what he's saying to you. 
So don't take it on to other people. Remember Jesus? He talks about the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is helping a dying Jew. Do you understand that the Samaritans and the Jews hated each other more than they hated the Romans? The Samaritans and the Jews hated each other more than they hated Jesus. And what does this Samaritan do? He probably did still dislike the Jew. He didn't love him because of feeling. He loved him by doing something. We say, oh, let's embrace him and give him a hug. I don't think he liked the Jew. Maybe he did. He did something. He didn't feel something. That's an issue. He did something. And what does Jesus say? Who was the good neighbor? The Samaritan. Because he did love, he didn't feel love. The issue is not your feelings. And the Samaritan didn't go measure for measure. Oh, that Jew. Oh, my goodness. Look at him. He's almost dying here on the road. Okay, he must have done something terribly wrong in his life to be in that condition. Even Job's friends, remember Job's friends? Okay, they did the same thing. They're counseling him. Oh, Job, you must have done something wrong in your past. They were doing measure for measure against him. And God intervenes and said, never. You don't know what you're talking about. Don't you dare accuse Job. You have no idea what the suffering is. Our limited perspective, we do this to each other all the time. And we have no business doing it because you're judging someone that they have sinned. And we cannot do that. So it comes down to the foundation of Torah. What is the foundation of Torah? Jesus says it. Love God, love your neighbor. When you go to Matthew 22:40, in Matthew 22:40, Jesus says this. After he just says, here's the two greatest commandments. He says this. On these two commandments from the NASB, on these two commandments depend the whole Torah and the prophets. Now your Bible would say the whole law. Okay, it's Torah. Now the Greek word there for depend is krem anuni. Krem anuni. The uh, Strong's number is G2910. And when you go to Thayer's Greek lexicon, not Strong's Concordance. But when you go to the Greek lexicon, it will tell you what Hebrew word this Greek word translated in the Septuagint. The Hebrew word that Krem Anuni actually translated in the Septuagint is Tala. Tala means to hang, suspend, or crucify. Now let me read it. On these two commandments, okay, the whole Torah and the prophets are crucified. When Jesus says this, he's crucified two days later. Who's Jesus? The written word. The written Torah and the living Torah. The written word and the living word are put on the cross together. So again, here we are seeing how all scripture testifies of Jesus and how everything is connected. The written word and the living word crucified together. Amazing. Now Jacob was shown Rachel by the Lord, by Yahweh. That's in Genesis, Genesis 29, 17. 
And the English is, she's beautiful of form and face. Well, the Hebrew gets a little bit more basic. The Hebrew's a little bit stronger and more down to earth. She had a beautiful body. And she was great looking. I mean, the Hebrew words do not sanitize what's going on. So seemingly God used what comes naturally to us men to be enchanted and captured by the physical charms of a woman as it's seen through our eyes. Now, this blinds Jacob. He is so smitten by Rachel physically, Jacob will do anything to have her. Of course, it's marriage, of course. But Jacob is blinded. That His whole decision is based upon his physical desire for her. And this is a reoccurring theme. We're going to see this as we go into Lesson 71. Jacob meeting Rachel and the aftermath of all of that. But this reoccurring theme of blindness, it's over and over. Remember Isaac. He and his father, Abraham, are going up the mountain. Little did Isaac know that Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son, Isaac, his only beloved son. And Isaac asked his dad, where's the sacrifice? And Abraham was blinded. Isaac was blinded. They couldn't see what God was going to do. They couldn't see what was, what was going to be supplied by God. Remember Rebecca and Isaac. Husband and wife. Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau. She was blinded by the attributes of Jacob, the wonderful good attributes of Jacob, her son, as he seemed to be taking on, as we've seen in previous lessons, the actual duties of the firstborn, where Esau didn't. But Isaac's blinded too. He's blinded by his son Esau. Esau's a rugged hunter, a man of, the, a man of adventure, a man of the outdoors. And Isaac is blinded to prefer Esau. But again, Isaac is physically blinded. Because we see how Jacob deceived his dad. How he basically, under his mother's orders, he had dressed up like Esau and Isaac's poor eyesight. He couldn't see that it wasn't Esau. So we're going to study this. More in Lesson 71. And so for us, may the Lord give us eyes to see and not be blind. May, give, may he give us ears to hear and not be deaf. May he give us a heart to understand. So I'll see you in the next lesson. Yahi Baruch Be Yeshua. El Ha Elohim Adon Ha Adonim. May you be blessed in Jesus Christ, God of gods, Lord of lords.